He showed he had no balls against Nick Ball, and he got mentally, physically, emotionally, and sexually violated against Lopez. Wasn't doing anything, wasn't winning anything. It was only until he offered to be Tyson Fury's bag carrier, cheerleader, and personal bog roll is when he started to get opportunities. When was you on top? When was you ever on top? Apart from literally rimming Tyson Fury, when have you ever been on top? He needs medical help. He needs medical help and he needs a barber to sort out that beard of his. I'm gonna sit here and keep nagging on about it, but I will be back and I know 100% there is nobody in the UK, there is nobody in the world and put a glove in front of me where I'm going to feel out of my comfort zone. So why not give it a go? Do you know what I mean? Why not get back in, get back in and shake? I love going away with the, all the gym boys, having a laugh, having the crack, the, you know, the sea, the swimming, the training, the diet, even though I complain about it when I'm doing it. But I like it. And welcome back, as always, to the number one podcast in the sport where, God, it looks like small hall boxing might be back. Um, I never thought I'd be saying that, but hey, after what I saw on Friday night, um, I'm of the view that there may be a future for small hall boxing. So let me just set the scene for context. So pre-pandemic, you had small hall boxing, and it was bubbling along, and you had your you had your usual names, right? There were just those guys who were coming through and you know, this time three years ago, you're looking at guys like Linus to break through, Brad Paul's from a Goodwin perspective. Um, Carl Greaves had his guys like your Brad Goldsmiths and so forth. Um, Dennis had his guys like Tommy Frank. And there were all these people who were due to, to bubble, bubble through, right? And then the pandemic happened. And there are probably a lot of things that happened in that pandemic we should go back and revisit. For example, Eddie Hearn saying that fans don't want to watch one-sided beatdowns anymore and they want more 50-50 fights, which he's failed to deliver on. But we can always come back to that another time. But with small hall boxing, it was almost like you had a couple of years away, really. And you're like, do I really want to be in York Hall? Which I don't care what anyone says is a terrible venue for boxing. Like logistically it's not designed for it it's all a bit rickety it's it's not my favorite venue but it's also my favorite venue just because it's easier to get to than the others so you had all of this do you really want people coughing in your face do you want drunk people spilling drinks on you do you want guys harassing your your girlfriend or your wife um do you want to be around fake hard men um you know failed Bounces, you know, there are all sorts of things that can happen at your call that can dampen your mood. Um, cost of living's going up, all these things. And you wondered, would small hall boxing come back? And we've seen, like, with the different promoters, numbers are okay. I know from what I hear, Steve's doing okay. Um, Dennis is doing okay. Uh, Alfie's doing okay, as I saw yesterday. So it's come back. But it's come back different. So small hall boxing has come back different. And I think what's really interesting is three years ago, right, early, 2000, early 2020, I should say, you had just a very clear line. You were either televised or you were small hall, right? And if you were televised, you fought at someone like the Copper Box um, or you fought at the MEN Arena. 
You may have fought uh, Birmingham NEC. You fought, you fought somewhere. You fought in an arena. A named arena, normally sponsored. M&S Arena, for example. Uh, Sheffield. Is it the Sheffield Star Arena? I can't even remember now. Uh, First Direct Arena in Leeds. Hydro up in Glasgow. You fought somewhere for that televised effect. And you had some little shows like The Next Gens, which never really took off. And then you had everything else that was generally off TV, apart from the MTK shows. Bring them back, by the way. Apart from the MTK shows, which were on YouTube. And what's happened in the three years since, Frank's moved his operation to extend lower into the what you can call the levels, right? So he does that kind of mezzanine between what I'd have called classic small hall that we're used to and kind of the televised thing. And that meant that you were getting guys like your Nathan Heaney's. And Nathan Heaney's not really a television quality fighter, but he moves tickets and would be a small hall monster. He's almost like the Stoke, um, what was that guy's name? Joe Mullender. So as Frank came down, you had guys like Dennis Hobson moving up with the benefit of initially free sports, then fight zone. So now you've got this kind of interesting space on the small hall scene where you don't, you've got your small hall legends, but really the focus of the card is on the kids who you expect to be televised, right? That's really what you're building. So you're building up a talent pool of fighters that can go on to a Sky or a Matchroom if needed or Frank if needed and equip themselves well. Let's not forget um, Callis Owland and his operation, but that's what they're building now. And I think what Alfie Warren's doing with Warren Boxing Management and was a promotion with Nielsen's Boxing yesterday, um, what I saw with that was that new proposition. So these are kids, you know, as biased as I am, Akilah Courtney Bennett will be on TV when he needs to be. Uh, before yesterday's action, I would have said Harry Mullins was on his way to being on TV, and he probably still is. It's just going to take a little bit longer. And so you, you, go, you go down that list of Warren Boxing Management fighters, and they're all kids who you're going to see on TV at some point, but it's let's get them some reps in the shadows where they can build and they can develop. And Alfie and the team are doing a wonderful job, and I always thank them for, for looking after me when I go to a show. And... I know people say, ah, you know, you're cool with Alfie, therefore you're biased. I'm not. Everything I tell you is verifiable to the people that were there, right? So in terms of attendance, here's what I am going to say. I got there for about just before seven. I was late for a number of factors, uh, which was annoying. So I got there just before seven. Didn't help that the queue took about 20 minutes to process, right? So I'm in this queue outside York Hall. Bethnal Green. And I thought they had us queuing so it looked like the venue was popping, but it would be empty as hell inside. That's what I thought. And so when I get to the door, I talk to the security guards because I know a few of them now. And I said, what's going on in there? He said, mate, it's packed. I said, it can't be packed. It's not even half seven. He said, mate, it's packed. Go in then, it's packed. It helps that you've had Courtney Bennett box early. So he's brought his however many hundred, hundred and twenty people with him. And there's all the other lot. There's loads of people who are there. There a lot of uh, the boxers. So you'll see Connor Hines there. Um, then you've got the sort of team Joshua Nelson lot who are there as well. But here's the thing that I found really weird. So it was your call was packed. Yeah, seven o'clock packed. 
Not, not, oh, it was busy. No, it was packed, uncomfortably packed. Made the buy areas a bit of a nightmare. And then it died down. Half seven to eight, it died down. Filled up again with a fresh bunch of people. And then that kind of died down. And then it filled up again with a fresh bunch of people. It's almost like you had a, a crowd for the undercard, a crowd for the mid card, and a crowd for the main event. I haven't seen that at a small hall show for years. I haven't seen that since like, the days of Ian Lewis and fighting at York Hall. I have not seen that level of capacity. Not to say it doesn't happen. It was... If you know York Hall, you'll know that, that between the ring and the bar area got really, really uncomfortable. And it can get quite touchy in those situations. And you can see the security guards, the shouts out Roman security, were working hard because you've got... I think Harry Mullins is affiliated with Bromley FC. So you've got a lot of those old kind of football hooligan-looking heads floating around. You've got the South London boys who are there. You know, some of those guys are heavy in the streets. You've got your nine-to-five people who do PT stuff with whoever. You've got you, this weird mix, and you have to almost balance those tensions. I, I found elements of it um, jarring. And, and, the, and it's one of the challenges, I guess, I have with fans that... A lot of people aren't necessarily boxing fans, but they're fans of boxing. So when there's a reason to, they'll get involved. But they're not boxing fans in the sense that they're not respectful to, you know, like, well, everyone's here to have a good time and that sort of ethos. It's more about them and their people, and they tend to act the fool. But in terms of the card, Jesus Christ, what, what an absolutely, like, what a solid night of boxing that was. So you have... I'm trying to think in terms of the show. You've got you got, you got kids on the way up, like your Harry Mullins and your Courtney Bennett. You've got your small hall kind of stalwarts, like a Josh Nelson, you know, who who's sort of done the circuit a few times. And then you've got kind of that little bit above, like your Jack McGann's who came with Martin Murray. God, that you know what? When I went backstage, I was a bit like, what if I bump into Martin Murray here? This might get awkward. Maybe maybe he listens. But also, just on a side note. For a guy who claimed to never watch boxing and never be interested in boxing in any way, shape or form unless he was fighting, bit strange that Martin Murray's actually training people. Like, what's he training them? And how is he, like, I don't, I don't get that because 40 is a bit of a mad age to be taking interest in boxing and wanting to learn what other people are doing, if you ask me. But, you know, I'm not going to claim to know more than I do. But you did, you had... You had a load of up-and-coming talent. You had some ticket sellers. So you had the guys who bring in um, polite way of putting it. It's not even a polite way, but kind of the, the Hamza Shiraz crowd, like Amma Kayani and all these guys. So they were bringing in audiences from everywhere. So I think in terms of putting a card together, credit where credit's due to, to Alfie, um, you know, Mark Nielsen and the whole squad because they seem to have found a formula that will keep your core full and busy. Now, in terms of the fights where I had a real interest, hand on heart, um, watching Courtney Bennett go 2-0, and uh, kids still learning. And it's a reminder that the amateur game and the pro game are completely different. And I've had a similar conversation with Jamie Shakiva about this. You can get away with so much in the amateurs because it's just about pace. It, you you can you can throw the wrong punches, but you throw enough of the wrong punches, they become the right punches. 
because you're not worried about hurting someone or stopping someone. You're really worried about outscoring them. And I think when you move to the pro game, you're really trying to put a dent in someone who doesn't want a dent put in them. And normally at this point, you're fighting guys who know their way around the ring better than you do. So you're going to be one of two things. You're going to be a, a workhorse in there, like an early Derek Chisora was. Or you're going to be like a Johnny Fisher, just a big lump of a man who loves putting dents in people. And you can't like, you see that size Johnny Fisher has, those, those big guys, those naturally big guys like Johnny Fisher, um, who else is that sort of size? Dillian was like that as well. Just guys who are big, natural lumps. They can get away with that. Whereas other guys need to kind of blend all the different elements. So insane work rate, super accurate, good timing, and some pop in those shots. And I think Courtney's still putting those together. And, you know, I think this is the sort of scene that's good for him. Because I loved watching post-fight, the interaction he had with people. And this is something that a lot of guys don't do in their early pro career. They don't mingle with the fans. So you're there, you put on a performance, people have come to watch you. You've got to stay for at least two or three hours after your fight and just be in the pictures with the fans, talk to them, have a laugh, have a conversation. I always say, from a boxing perspective, it goes like this. In, in order of priority on fight night, fight, family, friends, fans you gotta tick all of those boxes and then you leave yeah just four f's and you're good and so i like seeing guys do that connor hines was there you know i'm still trying to persuade him to become more of a more of a salesman because what connor what connor has and if you're in boxing you know what i'm about to say is true he has insane power for middle or super middle and he's just got to find a platform to show it. Like, hopefully, you know, he can end up on one of these shows that Alfie's doing. And if they match him properly, the key thing is to match him properly, to let him do a lot of damage. And you, you'll make a star out of him. And I don't, I don't see how you don't. And he can be one of those guys, like an Oval McKenzie, where you put him in with someone and he just catches them. And they go to sleep. And then that's it. He's the guy. And... Because I stand confident that Conor Hines can knock anyone out. Between 160 and 175, I think Conor Hines can knock anyone out if he catches them properly. And then the other guy I was interested in watching was Harry Mullins. So he boxed for the Southern Area Flyweight title. And I've known Harry for a while. Like Harry used to come down to the lodge with Ellie Scottney back in the day and have a little hit about with, with our guys who were his age. Because his gym, Churchill's, was just down the road from us by the, if anyone knows where Pimlico, Pimlico Plumbers is, just one of those arches there. So, like, we've, we've seen Harry grow and Harry boxed on Fight Zone. He worked with Sam Kinnock and worked with Dennis. So I kind of watched Harry because I know Sam pretty well and likable, likable pair, actually. I quite like Sam, really old school, uh, quite like Harry, lovely kid. I always worried that Harry had that style, and this is what we're finding a lot of. Harry might have had that style that was good in the arms because he could pick his shots, he could work, beautiful technique, and he didn't need to be a devil in the ring. And then I think he fought Paul Roberts uh, on this show. And Paul Roberts was just tougher. I don't think he's a better technician. Harry had the best of it early on, and then what happens, and this generally happens, 
Paul Roberts is taking more out of Harry Mullins and Harry Mullins is taking out of Paul Roberts. And then Harry gets put down in the seventh. Um, it's a nip and tuck fight and Paul Roberts takes the decision and moves on. And now Harry's got a rebuild. But when you're a Mullins, I think you'll find a way back some way, some, somehow, somewhere. And I wish him all the best because, like I said, he's a lovely kid. But overall, in terms of that, that, that was just a... It was a nice feeling to see that small hall shows aren't necessarily dead. And in the right in the right hands, you can have an occasion like that. I think, to be fair, um, if, if Alfie were here now, he'd say he was surprised by how busy it was. But he'll take that all day. Now, the question is, can they sustain that? Possibly. But I'd like to see that sustained because it shows that boxing's in a in a relatively healthy state when you look at what's happening at the grassroots and at that ground level. Um, I'd like to switch gears. If you guys will allow me to switch gears and talk about something, and like we've had a few days to reflect on Tommy Fury versus Jake Paul. And one thing that really disappointed me was watching so many people in boxing who claim to be, you know, above the shenanigans that the rest of us mere mortals get up to. Just watching those guys out with their begging bowl, Right. Look at all the boxers you saw out there with their begging bowl. You know, Derek's like, ah, Saudi Arabia is the place to be. This is the future of boxing. John Fury's of the same view. Everyone is bending over and grabbing their ankles at the moment. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're dressing the part, they're acting the part, they're looking the part in the hope that some of that Saudi Arabian oil money, some of that Aramco money, lands on their doorstep it's embarrassing and I can only talk from what I understand of sport in the Middle East sport in the Middle East is it's not a vanity project right because quite frankly they don't care yeah if, if they really cared about boxing the Saudis would have put 20 million into it set it up run it give us Olympic champions in eight years and you'd have seen guys like Dr. Pedro Diaz, the Ishmael Salas, whoever. They'd have got whoever they needed to into Saudi to do what they need to do. The fact that they get the WWE, which is the biggest brand, in that 18 to 34 demographic, the WWE is one of the biggest brands amongst men. So getting them over there isn't, it's a no-brainer. The UFC, similarly. Boxing, similarly. These are things you can get relatively easily with no investment in real infrastructure. You don't have to do anything other than stage an event and it moves on. The problem you have with things like football is you have to event, invest in infrastructure. So they're like, that means we've got to build stuff and maintain it. But we don't know what our objective is in terms of wider sporting goals. So people just assume the Saudis are rich people looking to throw money at anything. And it's not true. They're looking for solid propositions that deliver a return on investment. Derek Chisora doesn't deliver a return on investment. Wilder might do. Fury might do. But a lot of these boxers are just showing up lazy. They, they don't have that much of a profile that it makes sense. You know, who's, who's really traveling to Saudi Arabia to watch Chisora fight? Nobody. And they know that. So you're going to see a lot of people leaving Saudi Arabia disappointed. I, one thing I expect to see happen more often is a lot of these guys are going to convert to Islam. And it may be a sham version of Islam, but it'll be a version of Islam nonetheless. And it will be cynical. It will be for fans. It will be to curry favor with 
the Middle East because there's a whole principle that as a Muslim, you must help your fellow brother. So you're going to see a lot of people drifting to that kind of Islamic, you know, I'm a, I'm a Muslim, I'm this, I'm that, without necessarily praying five times a day. So you're going to see a lot of that kind of pretending window dressing for the public in the hope that they get the Saudi check. It's not, it's not a direction I'd like to see boxing go in, but as I keep saying, rule number one in boxing, you find people with money and you do everything you can to separate them from that money without giving anything back. The key part in this is without giving anything back. A tale as old as time itself, unfortunately. So that was the thing I wanted to take. Porky Russ has a far better take on it. So jump on his Porky's Corner channel. He, he has a, a better take. We talk about it there. But he, he's probably closer to the on-the-ground information than I am on that one. But I don't like seeing that. That kind of hula-hooping, you know, begging bowl in hand. Please, may I have some more? All that sort of stuff. It needs to, you know, it needs to stop, man. We need a more dignified approach, you know. Because the truth is the Saudis could just build a boxing franchise without anybody. They don't need a single person. They have enough money they can outlast and outmarket. They could drown Matchroom. They could drown Top Rank in terms of media spend. They could drown anybody. But they choose not to because it's a selective thing. You know, we want the events that the world will be watching. And the world ain't going to be watching Derek Chisora, unfortunately. Now, sorry, I just had to pause for breath. And I, when, I, when I was setting up to record, Arsenal were 2-0 down just to realise Arsenal have won 3-2. Um, ha! This might be our year. I'm not going to get too excited, though, because it's still, what, 14 games to go, 13 games to go? But, whew, it's getting, it's getting meaty. It's getting tasty. Yeah, it's getting tasty. You see the grin on me, man. I'm full Cheshire cat right now. Like, um, what else do we need to touch on in boxing? Conor Ben will be quick. So Conor Ben's going to go and Piers Morgan. And it's going to be another one of those kind of softball interviews, right? Where he just asks some questions about his life, his family. And he's going to try and make Conor look more human. But let me just come back. To... A lot of people assume that we, the world assumes Conor Ben is his drug cheat and it's a big deal. When I was at York Hall, no one cared. Like, it's an interesting story, like, right, he got caught taking drugs. But no one was like, he should be banned. People were just like, well, aren't they all on it anyway? Like, if you, if you ask the, the Bromley fan, the, the football man, the ex-hooligan, the Billy Brights, they say, oh, everyone's on it, mate. Like, they're like, I'll name you loads of boxers who are on the gear. No one cares. And that's when I realised that's the reason Conor Ben will always have an audience, because 80% of the Conor Ben fans do not care that he failed a drug test. They just want to see him in that ring tearing heads off. Because we love animals, we love monsters, we love savages. We don't care how they're made, we just love them. By analogy, um, last couple of days I've been watching the Arnold Strong Woman event. Because uh, a friend of mine, Tamara, was in there. Like, uh, well, in terms of in terms of like just weird stuff that happens to people. So I think she's the strongest deadlifter of of any woman that's ever lived. She has the highest deadlift. She was close to having the highest squat as well, and she's not far off having the highest total in the powerlifting meet of any woman that's ever lived. 
So she gets an invite to compete at the Arnold Festival of Sport to do Strongwoman. Never done it before. They give her like eight weeks to prepare. And she's shown up. And I always say that the target for her was just don't be last. And it looks like she's not going to be last. Um, she's just, I think, watching her was just a lesson in, you know, there's a lot to be said for sports-specific conditioning because she is insanely strong, but strong woman is also very technical and also very cardio-based, and you've got to prep for that. But that's a side side sidebar to the point. Those ladies that were participating in this event will never win a modeling contest. And I don't think they care, but they're not going to win a modeling contest because they've been ravaged by years of PED use, um, steroids, growth hormone, peptides, whatever you want to call it. Their faces are widening. You know, they're, they're, the faces are starting to deform. And that's one thing I quite like about Tamara is that she hasn't been impacted by the heavy PED use that a lot of strong women do. There was a lady from Ukraine. If you can find it, I can't remember her name, but there's a lady from Ukraine and she was world's strongest woman last year. She has a full on like, she's got hair like fucking Count Dracula. Like receding hairline so serious, it's incredible. And I was talking to a young lady about this who, who researches this. There's going to be a massive public health crisis amongst men and women around this PED use. Like you got young boys on the gear at 18, 19, 20. Once you're on that gear, it's hard to come off. So imagine kids are taking 10 years worth of gear. They get to 30, their kidneys are fried, their liver's cooked. But because everyone's on the gear, like in that Conor Ben generation, I reckon about 30% of men are on gear. If it's Psalms, it's Psalms. If it's Anavar, it's Anavar. If it's full-on injectables, if it's full-on growth, if it's peptides, they're on stuff that would get them banned under VADA, WADA, wherever. Some of those are involved in boxing, amateur and pro. So they're less likely to condemn Conor Ben because they understand the benefits it gives. Us older heads are going to moan because we're indoctrinated into the idea that sports should be fair. So I expect what you're going to see over the next three months is an almost perfect rehabilitation of Conor Ben. No ban, nothing. They'll wait long enough where they'll say to the board, look, he hasn't boxed for a year. That's almost a, effectively a ban. He hasn't made any money. That, that's what I think you're going to see happen. And the Piers Morgan interview will be like the opening shot in that. And then after that, the usual allies will come on board Bell you, they'll dig up Hearn, they'll dig up all of these people and you'll hear it. And it's sad to say, because I know a lot of people listening to this want to see fair play in sport, but this is the era we're in. We need to just start walking back and saying, just let them take what they want. If you're not going to bother trying to test and catch him, just let them take what they want. You know, when Victor Conti can't understand what's going on, you know there's a problem. You know, because let, let Victor Conti see the 270-page report. I have a feeling no one will ever see that 270-page report. Because as soon as you apply the wisdom, knowledge, and experience of the crowd, those 270 pages will come apart pretty quickly. Can I just touch on the Katie Taylor situation? Because I always, I always felt it weird that you'd go from having Katie Taylor box Amanda Serrano at Madison Square Garden which is supposedly the biggest women's fight ever in front of a record crowd, record gate receipts, all that stuff Hearn said involving Serrano. 
and then you do the rematch in an arena that holds less, probably for less money. And it always felt weird that Eddie would be that naive when he knew he could fill that arena if Katie Taylor fought anybody. So to hear that it's likely to be Chantal Cameron isn't a surprise. The biggest surprise to me, actually, is that it's not Alicia Baumgartner. But we know why it's not Alicia Baumgartner, because Alicia Baumgartner would stand a chance. You know, you know with Chantal Cameron, she's probably the right boxer, the right attributes in the wrong camp. So Katie Taylor should probably win that fight. And then she can say, look, look at everything I've won. And then you'll see her and try and push for Croke Park for a Serrano rematch. I don't believe the Serrano fight was ever realistic. And this is the sad part about boxing. And this is why, do you know what? Those guys who support Bromley FC, those guys who who only occasionally tune into boxing, they've got the right idea. Because when you're around this stuff all the time, you're just like, it's nonsense. It's utter nonsense, man. I wish I had the relationship with boxing that I do with football, where I know very little of what goes on behind the scenes. And through that, I could just listen to Fabrizio Romano and be happy. But I just think, if you were to measure the economic effect of Katie Taylor on boxing, I think the economic effect is probably close to zero. I just think she did a lot for Irish amateur boxing. But if you look at Irish amateur boxing, none of it's translated into the pro game apart from Katie Taylor. So six and a half years after turning pro, where's her legacy? Nowhere. But look at Tasha Jonas. Always around the next generation. Working with, she worked, she's worked with everybody from Hannah Rankin to Hannah Robinson. She's worked with everyone and she's helped elevate people. That's why, for me, Natasha Jonas is one of the most important women boxers out there. Her and Clarissa Shields, for me, for different reasons. Shields for just being a machine and a monster. And Jonas for, for doing so much. You think about it, she's been the elite athlete. She's done the Olympics. Miss GB. She then had a child. She's a single mom. She's doing all of this. She's ticking so many of those boxes that say... I'm proving to you that I can do anything. And she's inspirational to a far number, far greater number of people than I think Katie Taylor is right now. And I, that would have been a good match. Have Katie Taylor forget the belts, just have them settle their grudge. Whatever the weight is that they land at, have those two settle their grudge. That would have been a good fight for May 20th. But you know that's not going to happen because Jonas has got her tail up now. You know, and those two must be about the same age, right? Katie's what? 37, 36, 37, Tasha's 38, 39. Yeah, let them get at it. But just conscious that it's your weekend, so I don't want to take that too much time. One thing I did want to talk about, because the damn recording this, is the the sixth anniversary of Hey Bell You Won. Hey Bell You Won taught me a lot of what you see in boxing is make-believe. And it can be held so secret that everyone around you believes the gimmick. And, you know, I know, I know people on social media will say everything I'm saying now is fully made up. And that's okay. That's fine. Those who are there, those who know, know, right? So if you work backwards from that first Bellew fight, 
I had seen everything else that had happened in David's camp from about December 2015, right? So kind of that, that year and a bit that led up to that first Bellevue fight, I'd lived through. And if you've listened long enough, you'll know how I did it. But I was there, 115 Randall Road, uh, well, Archie 115, I should say. If you know, you cross over Black Prince Road into the park, yada, yada, yada. It's around the back of the park plaza. There you go. I can there just put it in time and space for you. And, and at that time, what David would do is he'd have two phases in a camp. He'd have a camp where he'd work with the young hungry guys who weren't necessarily going to be those destructive punches, but they were going to keep him on his toes. So that's my role. And I'd bring the young guys I had, Courtney Bennett, John Palazzo, and anyone else we had. Another lad who was in camp at that time would have been Chris Binham-Smith and his coach, Kev Thornley. That's how I know Kev. And I remember in, in all of this, like I remember when we first got the, the nod to be involved. Um, so thanks to Shane, thanks to Stevie Broughton, um, both guys I still respect now because without them, I don't think any of this happens, by the way. So get called in. And through this whole thing, I'm like, I'm sure he's better than this because I'd seen the video of him sparring Wilder, Richard Towers, uh, Marius Vac. Um, I've even seen clips of him sparring Hergovic. And I'm there going, this ain't the same guy. So partway through the camp, well, not through the camp, but through this journey, I find out that he's got, you know, bolts in his back because just years of wear and tear. And now it all starts to make sense. I'm like, this dude, this ain't the guy. But the paradox is I've seen him drop experienced cruiserweights multiple times. He was, he'd drop people for fun. If you weren't on your game, he could still drop you. And he still had timing, he said all of this. But you could see, I was like, I don't know if this is the same guy. You know, and I started to feel this is just a payday thing. That's all well and good. So, so I remember when the Bellew fight gets announced, we were all in the gym, um, got to see some of that media stuff happen. I'm watching all of this. I'm like, okay, cool. Me being naive, I'm like, yeah. We're going to war with Bellew. We're going to war with Liverpool. I believe that because I'm still naive to the game. So when everyone's there, that's all you're hearing, right? And we're all doing like these jokes. Yeah, the bell end will get circumcised. And these are the jokes we're, we're having behind the scenes, right? When, when all the media darlings are there. And it wasn't until it was like a small circle of people. I started to feel, I don't think he really hates Bellew. But I don't know. It's just, this isn't how, how I would deal with someone I didn't like. And I'm watching all of this. And so we shoot past Christmas and we get to what I call the business end of camp. So from January onwards. And John Pilata's working with David. You know, I just know the, when I'm meant to be in, right? So they'll say, can you bring De John? Can you bring Courtney? Can you bring them together? Can you bring this? Can you bring that? On these days. And like, when you, go into, when you used to go into David's gym, there was a calendar. So you knew when the sparring days were. So in your head, you're kind of planning like, okay, I need to make sure that they're ready on these days in case we get the call. 
Um, what's the sparring like? It happens when it happens. Like there are times you can get there for 12 and the sparring doesn't start till 2. You know, you, you, you learned to be flexible, um, adaptable. I brought work laptops there, hooked up to the Wi-Fi, started working. Um, I've worked out of the Park Plaza before. Like we just found ways to, to make it happen. And I just remember you'd look and then there's a time... This has got to be early Jan and it was a Tuesday because it was the day that I filmed my first ring talk with Stephen Martin and I'd been in the gym in the morning with, with JP and David. And we were meant to do six rounds. Now bear in mind, you're like, it ain't long till the fight. Like, I mean, you're looking at the second, maybe third week in Jan and you're like, it ain't long. And it was a Tuesday. And so there were, after that Tuesday, there was a sparring day on the Thursday and a sparring day the following Tuesday before he was due to fly out to Miami to, to do what I imagine is the real camp, right? With Brian Jennings and those sorts of people who, who know David reasonably well. So on this Tuesday, we come in in the morning. It's all friendly, it's a laugh. Shane's not there. I think Shane was in the States with Frampton and Josh Taylor might have gone out there as well. So Steve, Steve's running the camp out here. And then the plan is... After the Frampton fight, which I want to say was January 27th, can't imagine. Straight after that, they'd link up in Miami and do the rest of the camp. So Dave was meant to be in London till... Basically, I think he was going to fly out on the Friday for the Frampton fight, go straight into camp on the Monday. So this is like, a, like 10 days before that. And David and John are working together. And I'm watching David because I'm like, okay, how can we make this interesting? And his feet aren't his feet aren't articulating well. So you're not getting that twist. He's kind of stepping and dragging his back leg. And I'm watching. And generally, like, when you're, when you're a guest in a gym, you don't want to take the piss. And so what you do is you talk to the other coach and you go between rounds, Steve, you happy with it? Do you need it to go up a level, down a level? And he's, he's like, okay, you can move it up. And I said, and I said to John, step it up, mate, yeah? Now start making him move a bit. Let's see how mobile he is. After the second round, John comes back and goes, I'm hitting him too easily. I'm like, you hitting him hard? He's like, no, 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 no. Just hitting and, hitting and moving. I was like, okay. Go heavy to the body and light to the head. See how he reacts to that. And like David just couldn't, couldn't react. You know, he, you, you know when you watch and you're like, there's something wrong here. And so they did, I think they did four out of the six rounds. David steps out and goes, no, 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 that's, that's it for today. So we all have a conversation. It's all cordial, by the way. It's cordial, it's friendly. We're having a good conversation. And it's like, we'll see you on Thursday. That's the, where the conversation ends. We will see you on Thursday. So I go to film ring talk. I'm talking to martin and steve and they go how's david looking and i said i think tony might win this so i said yeah i think tony might win this and i said i can't put my finger on it there's something not right here i said there's something not right here because david doesn't look scary that's what i said he doesn't look scary it looks like he's holding back but i was like it's six weeks till till he fights so how are you holding back now I remember just saying at the time, I said, yeah, I'd put money on Bellew to win by stoppage. And I said it. 
Um, maybe I should have broadcast that. But remember, you've got relationships with people at the time, so you can't. But I said that privately on that. It was a Tuesday. So Wednesday evening, I messaged Stevie B. I'm like, mate, we still good for tomorrow? Nope. We're in Miami. What? And I said, but the calendar said we were... He said, no, we're in Miami. And then that's when you started to see the kind of party lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. I don't know if that was kidology and stuff. And then that's when that all started to pop off. And then they're all in Vegas for the Frampton Fight Week the week after. And then the camp starts after that. And you see the pads on the boat and all that sort of stuff, which, which is all done for the media because really they were training hard in Dino's gym, Fifth Street. They were training really, really hard. So the, the pads thing was just for show. But then, you know, you come back, you do a bit of sharpening up work here, which we were part of as well. But you just got the impression like, Man, this guy's old now. I don't say that to disrespect him because if you say to me, what's David like up close and personal? If you don't have a business relationship with him, if you're just talking about life, music, you know, the body getting old, because I think he's like a year older than me. But you have those conversations. Like you're just having conversations as men about life. He's a top guy, man. He's intelligent. He knows a lot. He's sharp. And I can see why he's been successful in everything he's done because... He has something that I don't have. And I, I envy people who can do this. He can look at a group of people and he can work out what each of them needs from him. And he'll give them that. And he'll leave. And everyone leaves, they're going, what an amazing man he is. I want to see him again. And they offer him stuff for free based on that. He's, he's good at that. I don't know where you learned that skill and how you learned that skill, but he did. So... So I'd felt from, from, the last, from that last time we did a proper camp spa with him, I'd always felt that we'd get him. And then when you saw the sharpening up work, we did, we did not, not, not the Monday of fight week, the Monday before that we did. And there was something still not right about that leg. And then the week after when we heard he had flown out to, to Germany for an injection, I just got a message from, I can't let me not drop names, but I've got a message and it was like, yeah, told you something was wrong. And then once you start to talk into the boxing world, you realize that Bell, you knew this from the start. Bell, you knew that David was in no fit shape to, to fight. Now, how he knew that, you imagine someone dropped the poison, poison pill in the water, right? And someone said, yeah, his Achilles are screwed. Well, both of them are screwed. They've got loads of wear and tear. He shouldn't be boxing. His back is screwed. He can't twist. Someone would have given Caldwell that. Because if you notice in that fight, if you remember in that fight, Bellew didn't really try anything. He treated it like, like an experienced pro sparring a novice. He took his time and he was like, I'm not going to get knocked out here. I'll take him out whenever I need to. And I remember watching that fight going, they, they knew well in advance. They knew they were fighting a broken man. I'm not going to knock him for it because it looks like this was all concocted to make money. So yeah, we'll do it once, then we'll do it again. Um, if there's anything left of David, we might then see if he'll fight Joshua. But by the second bell you fight... It was done. 
he couldn't drag his body through anymore. You know, for me, if you ask me when I look back on it, I loved every minute of it. I wouldn't change a second of that for the world because I was never meant to be in those positions. I was never meant to be in that world. If you look at everyone who tried to shut the door on me, like, nah, he ain't nobody. Forget this guy, forget that guy. Just through grafting and having the balls, like, no one asked me. I literally showed up at Shane's gym the day they were packing everything up because the lease had run out. That very day, had I arrived a day later, it would never have happened. And watching all of that, the lesson I took, and it, you can extend it to the time I was around George, Carl, Josh, whoever you want to include in that, in that kind of McGuigan run I had. And I'm always grateful for that run, but it taught me that I don't want to do the pro thing. Just don't. Don't. It was hard, hard work. But being in that environment on a daily basis, pretty much, taught me a lot about how to run a gym, how to manage a gym, how to maintain standards in a gym, um, allow me to meet some fantastic people like Chris Billum Smith, you know, Kev Thornley, great, great, great human beings, people like Brian Jennings. They got to meet a lot of fantastic people, even the people who support David, you know, the people who, who go unseen in this game, like Nicole and Rose, people, you know, no one sees them, but they keep the wheels turning. Um, you know, they were good. They made sure that if David had to do a boxing related appearance, it was with double jab. So we always kept that link up. That meant we did the Amazon advert with David as well. So I, I appreciated that. And so whenever this anniversary comes up, I always look back and go, that turbocharge, because that, that took, that gave me a platform where I could move away from just being another guy with an opinion to someone who had something interesting to say to people. And then everything else has just been built off that. So I'm grateful for that moment. And more importantly, man, I'm grateful to you guys for always listening. So may God bless you. And I'll catch you on the next episode, guys. Take care.